This new series is called I Believe, and it's on the Apostles' Creed. Okay, and, and if you don't, does anybody know what the Apostles' Creed is in here? Raise your hand. No, no shame if you don't. Okay, cool. So, so some of us do. Um, we're going to talk about what a creed is. We're going to unpack that in a little while. If you don't know what a creed is, if I said creed and you thought of, can you take me higher? That's not the creed I'm talking about. All right, with arms wide open, it's not the creed I'm talking about. Okay, in fact, my dad's here. My dad, in, in 1999, when their album, I don't even remember the name, I wrote it down, called Human Clay came out. He brought it home from work, and I remember he was like, hey, Rich, uh, somebody gave this to me at work. It's a new Christian band, I think, and he threw it to me. And they're about as Christian as every country singer ever, just the mention of God and a couple songs, and that's about it. But, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, if you don't know it's, if you don't know Creed and you were alive around that time, just open Spotify or Apple Music on the way home and turn them on because you will remember them. <laughs> Why am I talking about this? Our Apostles' Creed, right? Maybe you grew up in the church and you recited the Apostles' Creed. What I want to tell you is relax a little bit. If you grew up in a church that kind of recited it mindlessly, with, with empty, with really no heart behind it, we're not looking to get into that too much here. But maybe you're super pumped because you had a, I grew up in the United Methodist Church and I had to memorize this for my confirmation. Confirmation was pretty much just me g- g- entering into membership, but I had to memorize this and Psalm 23. And uh, that was part of our uh, confirmation deal there. But what we're going to do over the next, this week and then the next four weeks, is we're going to allow the Apostles' Creed to guide our teaching. We're going to allow the Apostles' Creed to take us on a journey throughout the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and to take a look at our role within their playground. It's going to be sweet, but what I do want to clarify is this Apostles' Creed, if you don't know what it is, I'm going to say it in a minute, all right, and then later on we're going to do this together. We're going to stand up for those of us who believe, and we're going to say it together. But the Apostles' Creed is just going to be a guide for us because we are going to preach from the Word of God. We're not preaching from the Apostles' Creed. We're preaching from the Word of God. I also want to clarify one more thing. When we go ahead later and we, we stand and we say this, this isn't an incantation. We don't believe in that as Christians, where you just say things and then all of a sudden, mindlessly, and then all of a sudden you are saved and you believe, all right? But we uh, are just going to be saying this as a declaration for those of us who from our heart truly do believe, all right? So let's go ahead. I'm going to read the Apostles' Creed now, and then we'll go ahead later on. I'll invite you to, to join me in this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the quick, uh, excuse me, the living and the dead. I'm reading my version. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, which Catholic is a synonym for universal, right? The Holy Universal Church. This isn't necessarily talking about Roman Catholicism. The Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. Creeds are a heck of a lot of information, 
boiled down into, there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack there. These next five weeks are going to be nuts. But let us first answer, uh, let me first try to answer a couple of questions here. Number one, what is a creed? And number two, what does it mean to believe in something? This creed begins with, I believe. What does it even mean to believe? So first off, what is a creed, all right? In Latin, uh, it comes from, the, from a Latin word, credo, all right? Credo literally is translated to I believe. So it is a list of beliefs. A creed is a list of beliefs. Now, the Apostles' Creed in, particularly, uh, in particular was derived from um, this document called R, which was a list of questions about who God was and who we are in him. Okay, And what the Apostles' Creed did was it answered those questions and it put it into this format of a creed. And we think, this doesn't really matter, but we think that Ambrose probably penned this, penned this or whatever he did at that point in time, around 400, right? Um, but we're not totally sure, but that's neither here nor there. But what are creeds useful for? All right, so we know what a, what a creed is, right? It's this list of beliefs, but what are they useful for? I got five things. Number one. They are useful for as a public statement of faith. They are useful to, to bring about symmetry on the essentials, for, for us to sit here together and say, we agree on these things. And what, what creeds do, I alluded to this a little bit earlier, is they shine light back to the Word of God. Just like the moon doesn't give off light on its own, but it's the sun reflecting off the moon, creeds don't give off perfect light on their own. It is the Word of God reflecting off the creed. All right, do you get me there? So we don't see creeds as, as perfect. There's a lot of creeds that, that aren't perfect, that don't reflect perfect truth. But we believe that the Apostles' Creed certainly does that. So it's a public statement of faith. Number two, it's a standardized way of confessing belief. For those who are new to the faith, this is a way to say, hey, this is what I believe. When people ask me as a Christian, as a pastor, what do you believe, Rich? I'm oftentimes, because of my, my, me memorizing it back in Sunday school, I'm oftentimes rolling through the Apostles' Creed and talking about the essentials of the Christian faith. I'm not reciting the Apostles' Creed to the person across from me. Like if I say the version I know in, incorporates the word siddith. If I just pull out siddith out of my back pocket, they're going to be like, what are you talking about, right? I'm talking in layman's terms, kind of going through, okay, we got God the Father, we got Jesus the Son, we got the Holy Spirit at work in the people of God today. But this is also, uh, for, for those who, who may ask you a question, this is a good guide for, for all of us to be able to, to speak to other people about what we believe is essential in the Christian faith. So it's a public statement of faith. It's a standardized way of confessing belief. But it's all, it also anchors our faith to tradition. Now, tradition gets us a little scared in evangelicalism, right? We want to be a little bit careful with tradition because, uh, you know, if we get too caught up in tradition, then we're just kind of mindlessly doing church and mindlessly living our lives. But here's the thing. Tradition in the name of tradition is bad. That's called legalism. Doing things because we're just supposed to do this because we've done it forever is legalism. When we do tradition for the sake of rolling our affections up to Jesus and God being glorified, that is good. So when we attach ourselves to the tradition of old, to, to the believers who have gone before us, who have done the, the nitty-gritty dirty work in the work, I shouldn't call it the working through the Bible dirty work, right? But the nitty-gritty work in the Bible, 
We're saying, okay, we're attaching our faith to ours. They have gone before us, and they are part of the cloud of witnesses right now. And it really, uh, in anchoring our faith to tradition, it makes it difficult to stray. Makes it difficult for both individuals and for churches to stray. The reason the Apostles' Creed was created around 400 was because there was two heresies of the day, Gnosticism and Marcionism. And these two heresies, you don't need to know the details of this, but together they deny God as creator, they deny the divinity of Jesus, and they deny the Old Testament. So if someone was to, to come in as, as, as someone who was Gnostic or, or Mar- Marconian, we would, we would be able to say, hey, here's what we believe. And it's out of line with what you believe. So it's a public statement of faith. It's, standard, it's a standardized way of confessing belief. It anchors our faith through tradition. It's, number four, a preaching or discipleship tool. Like I said, you could share this with other people. You could talk to other people about it. We're literally using it as a preaching tool right now. And then number five, it allows for clarity and alignment between churches. So when we roll out to Denver, our church there is going to hold the same creed, the Apostles' Creed, as Zarephath Christian Church does here. We hold the same creed as, all, uh, as a bunch of churches all throughout the world. This aligns us together and allows us to reject what isn't true, which is important. In this post-truth age, it's important to reject what isn't true. Rejection sounds nasty and mean, but it doesn't have to be nasty and mean, right? It should be gentle and kind, but we do not hold to truth that isn't really true just for the sake of being nice to people. So we know now what a creed is, but where did creeds come from? We see the Bible has creeds on the Father, Son, and Spirit let me give you three examples. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom are all things and through whom we exist. Did I read that right? That's a lot there, right? It's a creed. It's packed down. It's a lot of information all into one. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. 1 Timothy three sixteen. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's these compacted compacted bits of truth that make a creed, and we see that within the Word of God. So, we answer the question, what is a creed? A creed is a set of beliefs. We know what a creed does, but let's answer a little bit of a tougher question. What does it mean to believe? The creed begins with, I believe. What does it mean to believe? If you were in a life group this week, you probably were talked about this question. What does it mean to believe in something? I believe. Well, I think an answer can be found in Romans 10, 9 and 10. It says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Continuing on. For with the heart one believes. Did you hear that? For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Belief at its root is a heart issue. Belief isn't just knowledge of, of, of knowing, although it could start there, right? But, but the knowledge needs to be connected with the heart. 
And what I mean by that is it's not, belief isn't just this, oh, it's what I do, although what we do kind of shows what we believe to a certain standard. Belief isn't just this standard that we kind of hold ourselves to and fail all the time. No, no, no. Belief is something that we, when we believe in something, we delight in it. We embrace it. We treasure it. Belief captivates the whole person, body, mind, and emotion. When we believe in something, we are all in for that thing. So when we say, I believe, we are saying we're all in. Today we're going to talk about how how we're all in that God is the Father, creator of heaven and earth. As believers, we hold on to that. So let's go ahead and let's talk about this first line here, this first phrase in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. There's a lot there. Analyze that with me. I mean, there's a lot there, right? God, first off, what God, you know, you're talking about who is God? The the Father, God's a Father and He's Almighty? Where does that even end? And, And He's the creator of all things, you're telling me? Well, if I had to give you a, a one-sentence sermon here and, and tell you, unpack what this means, which I'm not going to do, okay? But I would say this. In short, this means that God is creator and ruler of all that exists, meaning he deserves our complete undivided worship. As Christians, we believe that God is, is creator and sustainer who has created everything that there ever has been and because of that he deserves our everything so let's look at him as creator genesis 1 1 through 2 says this in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of god was hovering over the waters the face of the waters so as christians we unashamedly agree that God is creator of all. That God has created all things. He's the sustainer of all things. If we lose that grounding, that foundation, we're losing a lot. So as believers, we believe we are all in for the fact that God is creator of all. Now there would be some camps that, that disagree. A lot of camps that disagree, right? You have the atheist camp that disagrees, right? Got the likes of, of Bertrand Russell who says that the universe, you know, the universe always has existed. But even in that conversation, you have, you have other conversations, right? Atheists might disagree, but then you have agnostics who believe that there is something out there somewhere, but we cannot know him, her, it. We can't quite grasp what that is. But agnostics would probably take issue with this. Even, even guys like Darwin alludes to the fact that there is something that created something to some level at some point. But as believers, as Christians, we believe that the universe certainly began and had a starting point. And the cosmological argument would agree with us. Science would agree with us, right? The cosmological argument is this. That anything that begins to exist has a cause. So the universe exists, therefore the universe has a cause. This makes it scientifically reasonable to believe that There is a God. And the reason it makes it reasonable is because creation is contingent on a creator. 
So you have this conversation happening. And what I want to say before I get too far is that I don't have, we don't have time to unpack all of this. I mean, there's so much there. There is, is so much there. We just don't have the time to go through it all this morning. So I'm going to be touching on some things. Well, you've got to do your own research. You've got to do your own work. We've got to meet for coffee otherwise. But what I want to say, and a point I want to make here, is that God isn't afraid of your questions. Like, if you doubt that God's the creator of all, go ahead and press him. If he's God Almighty, like, do you think he's going to cower and get nervous over your questions? No, go ahead and dig in. Go ahead and bring science into the equation. Bring reason into the equation. Do whatever you want. He doesn't cower over those things. And it's my hope that in the midst of bringing these things into the equation and considering him, that you'll see his beauty through it. Because that stuff will hit a ceiling. It's going to hit a ceiling and it's going to make you, make you kind of go crazy, really. And if there's any philosophers in the room, my respect to you because I get head spun over this kind of stuff. So go ahead and dig in. My question, you know, uh, as I think about creation of the world and if the universe always existed, and this is just a simple question, but even if change, even if the universe had always existed or it came from nothing or whatever and, and it came over millions of years or thousands of years or whatever, well then why is it more just coming out of nothing now? Why aren't we seeing that happen now? But that leads us to another question. What about the age of the earth? Well, this, this earth, Rich, uh, one thing you're forgetting is it's dated to be billions of years old. You're wrong. Have you heard of fossils, Rich? Have you heard of fossils? Well, let me just say here that even the creation story, this is another thing I want to encourage you to dig in on. There's many opinions within Christianity about this, right? You've got gap theory. You've got theistic evolution. You've got the flood theory. You've got yada, yada, yada. You've got a bunch of <clears throat> ideas of how God created things and, and the timing between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. All that stuff. Go ahead. If that interests you, dig in. I'm going to give you my opinion, but I, I'm going to just tell you that, that maybe there, there are other people who give me convincing opinions. For me, the bottom line is that God created it all. If there's millions of years between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, then go ahead. If you're right, I don't care. But I'm going to give you my opinion because I have the mic and you don't. So here it is. My opinion is that God created the earth, the heavens and the earth, in a literal six days. 24-hour days, literal six days. Sweet. I got some conservative creationists in the house. Welcome. Glad you're here. All right. Join my party. But here's the thing, all right? He created it all, and he created it aged, right? You see in the creation narrative that, that trees were producing seed, right? I believe that if you were to take a, take a chainsaw, even though they weren't in Eden, right? If you were to chainsaw that tree, you would see rings in the tree. They were producing seed already, right? They were flourishing already. They weren't growing. They didn't, uh, God didn't create seed, right? But he also created Adam as a man. And Adam himself had seed. Adam was capable of procreation because God said, go ahead and do that. So that's my opinion there. Take it for what it may be. 
that's neither here nor there. But let's continue on, okay? If God did create all things, it has huge implications on us. It has huge implications on our life, and it should astound us because if God created all things and he sustains all things, this means that there's no ultimate reality other than God. And what I mean by that is that, that at, at like the end of the day, when we talk about everything we've ever had or everything we've ever seen, all of that was derived by God. Everything down to the raw material of everything. This building, if you were to take this building apart and strip the paint off the walls and take the beams down and take every screw out of every piece of drywall, if we take every block and every piece of cement in between, we were to just lay it all out, we would draw those things back to whatever factory or warehouse they were made at. But here's the thing. Factories and warehouses need raw material to make their raw material. God has created the rawest of raw material, and with that material, he endowed it from the beginning with characteristics that he wanted it to have. He creates the raw material in order for science and and inventors to come ahead and to bring that together in order to make what we see around us. Like, he is the one who has done all of that. He created the necessities for creation. Even a garden. I am a failed gardener. I'm so happy Gene Huntington's not here right now because I do not want to hear it from him, okay? I'm pretty sure he's not here. I don't see him, all right? Because he's a great gardener. He's ragged on the fact that my garden failed last year. Right, I planted a garden went so hard. I had my buddy Colin come over and help me. Oh, man, we were working our butts off. I'm like, this could be great. I'm going to have tomato sandwiches and peppers in my food and all this kind of stuff. And feel, I was just feeling good, right? And uh, just uh, two weeks later, everything was gone. Who's a good gardener in here? Mediocre gardener even. Raise your hand. Good. Some of you were like. Well, let me just knock you down a peg. You can cultivate that soil. You can get everything all nice and ready. You could, you could throw in that little, what's it called? I, I mixed in the soil with some of this. Uh, one of them, okay. And, and you know what? I threw it in there. I'm like, ah, oh, this is going to grow. This is great. Put a fence around it, you know. And guess what? You can do all that you do, but you can't make a seed grow. You're not making that seed grow. That's God's work. That's, that's, that's raw. Even if we artificially recreate seed, we're taking that from the seed that has already been created. God is our ultimate reality and his creation. Everybody's clapping except for the gardeners. You're like, ah. And his creation is unique. As opposed to our creation, God's creation is unique because God's creation has no limitations. But human artists must work with the limitations that their medium employs. For example, malleability of metal, right? Who's ever been to Grounds for Sculpture? Right? They just get metal and bend it all certain ways. I walk around, I was kind of confused, but it was awesome and cool and beautiful and, and great. And they need to work, those artists need to work with the malleability of the metal that they are given to create their art. And if there's a certain way that they can't hammer out this metal just because it doesn't allow, they hit a roadblock. And that's not just that, but it's also reflective characteristics of paint. You can only, only use 
what has been given. In fact, Ifoma uh, so wonderfully uh, painted new life over here with the little dove on the side on this cross up here. And I bought her the paint to do that last week. And I came in and she was painting up here where the cross was down here, if you guys remember from last week. And she said, Rich, what's this paint you got me? Where'd you get this from? And I said, I got it from Home Depot. Where else am I going to get paint from? And she was like, Rich, I want craft paint. I don't need this paint. This paint is so glossy, it's hard to work with, right? Foma, although a brilliant artist, was limited by the paint that she was using. We're limited to language, even in our poetry. Am I right? We're limited in language, even in our poetry, for, for what... Uh, when we talk about ecstasy, when we talk about joy, when we talk about hurt, that's only going to take us there so much. Even digital platforms, right? The speed and resolution of digital devices. We are limited, but God is not. Get this. Millard Erickson says this. God is not bound to anything external to himself. That's good. His only limitations are those of his own nature and choices he has made. God's work is different than ours. So if God created all things, and we haven't even grazed the surface of, of all that that entails, but if he has created all things, then why has he done it? Let's open up to Acts 22, uh, 17.22 in order to look at why he has done that. This is Paul talking to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was this uh, Athenian council, uh, the people from town that just knew what they were talking about, right? They were the philosophers of the day. And this is one of my favorite texts in the whole Word of God. And it says this, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. So Paul here is, is getting after it with the Areopagus. He's going after it there, just talking about his God and how their God is unknown, but his, his God is known. But he gets after why all things were created at the end of his lecture to them. Look at verse 27 and 28. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. That's verse 28. As even some of our own poets have said, Paul turns this on them and talks about, here, here even your own people have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So why has God created everything? Why has God created us? So people would have a relationship with him. So that people would know him. Paul preaches to the Areopagus. They have these altars to the, these gods that they don't know. The altars are in Athens and Olympia and Pergamum. And he's saying that, hey, you have these gods that you're not even really sure of. And they live in these temples. And you're not even really sure about who they are. But you make sacrifices to them anyway. Well, let me tell you something. 
I have a God who can be known and who is greater. A God who doesn't live in the Parthenon. He's not served by us. He doesn't need us. Do you get that? God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. I passed somewhere sometime. I'm not going to say where it was, but there was a sign out front that said, Help Wanted, God Needs You. And I was like, oh, my gosh. God Almighty doesn't need us. He's not served by human hands. He doesn't need us one bit. But he has chosen to be in relationship with us. By his divine love, by his, his, his passion for us, his compassion on us, he has chosen to be in relationship with his creation. God doesn't need me to move across the country for him, but he has chosen to use me. God doesn't need you for anything, but he has chosen to use us. God's going to make his way happen, whether you like it or not, whether you do it or not. But praise be to him that he chooses to be in relationship with us. And you know what? Paul's spewing all these things. And the Athenians, they were supposed to know everything, right? The Areopagus were supposed to know what they were talking about, just about everything. And Paul points to this God that they do not know. He points to this God. He says, hey, your God, this God is here. And he is not like you stoic folks think. He is not pantheistic, where pantheism is where, where God inhabits his creation, where, where God would be inhabiting this monitor here. No, 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 no. He's saying God is among us. Paul is ultimately getting out here to the Areopagus and to us. Life isn't about chance. Stop it. Life isn't about chance. You're not an accident. You are not worthless or or useless or kind of thrown onto this earth for whatever to kind of stumble along and then die one day. No, no, no. You have been meticulously created by the God of the universe. That is good news for us. We have been created, all of us, the Areopagus, Paul himself, We've been created to know him. So God is big. Yes, he is big, and he has created us, and he wants us to know him. And, and listen, I don't want us to get it wrong. Like, he wants us to know him, but he also wants us to see how big he is. Like, God is big. We should feel finite. We should feel small. When we sit under who he is, he's greater than we could ever, 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 ever imagine. But along with how great he is, Paul makes a note to say he is big, but oh man, he's not far. We even see the beginning of this creed. God the Father Almighty. So we're not talking about deism, right? Deism is where there's this God who's far away and we can't really have a relationship with him. Deism is where God tur- uh, people believe that God turns the car on and gets out of the car and, and goes away. If that's what we believed in, then guess what? We can eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. We got to get it all in while we can because guess what? Death is waiting. There's no way I leave my friends and my family and these good people here at Zarephath for a God who has nothing and wants nothing to do with me to move out and to proclaim this God who wants nothing to do with the people of Denver. No, God wants everything to do with you. God wants everything to do with the people of Denver. He is extreme. He's intense. He's infinite. He is huge, but he is a father, right? Look at Psalms 103, 8 
to 4, 14. It says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, which means scold or rebuke, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And get this last part. He knows our frame. He knows how small we are, how finite we are, how messed up and broken we are. He remembers we are dust. So get this. The supreme creator of the universe is also the one who tucks us in at bed, to bed at night. Do you get that? The supreme one of the universe tucks us into bed at night. The supreme creator of the universe listens to our cries. The supreme one of the universe knows our fears. The supreme one of the universe celebrates with us. The supreme one of the universe cares for us. He's extreme and he's personal. He's extreme and he's intimate. If that doesn't leave you, believer, feeling secure, nothing will. He is orchestrating the cosmos and he cares for the little tiny aspect of your life. He cares that you're hungry right now and Rich is still preaching it's 1235. He cares. I don't care. He cares. We're closing here. We're closing. Bess, you're not hallelujah in my, my end of my sermon, are you? I'm just kidding, sister. I love you. <laughs> so with all this, with all this truth here, why do we run to the world to solve our problems rather than the one who has created us? Why do we run to that which has been created rather than the creator? Why do we run to, to money, to fame, to success, to materials, when that's not the reason those things were created? They weren't created to satisfy us, to solve our issues, to solve our longings, to fill our need. No, no, no. God has created us to be in a relationship with him. We can keep running after that which doesn't satisfy and keep running from, from the one who's created it all. We can keep not trusting that he is what is best for us. But we're going we're gonna to end up like, you know, Jim Carrey has this quote, and I love it. He said this, Jim Carrey. I'm not talking about theologian Jim Carrey. I don't think there is one. I'm talking about the Jim Carrey. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. We can trust that God knows best. We can trust that this life that God has called us into, this life of holiness, this life of, of this, this with God life, this, this life where he has called us out on mission, this life where we pursue the calling of God, we can trust that he knows what is best because he is a good father. And he has created everything. So the creator knows the intricate details of what, that which he has created. Like, how evil of a dad would I be if I let my little girl, who was up here, did you see her touching my mic, right? And she was like, Mommy, praying. Mommy, praying. We're praying. Mommy. Like, oh, thanks for letting us know we're praying together with the whole church here. She was whispering up here the, the whole time. But what, what an evil, evil father I would be if I didn't guide her and protect her and try to lead her into the things that are going to allow her to flourish 
What an evil dad I would be if every time she wanted to go outside, I just lit her outside with a pond in front of our house, with, with just the world out there, right? What, what an evil dad I would be. What an evil dad I would be if I didn't stop her from shoving 8,000 grapes in her mouth rather than just chewing one at a time because she's going to choke. But on a more serious level, like what an evil dad I would be if I didn't guide her and, and help her navigate life in her little two-year-old self. My friends, we don't have, God's not an evil father. He has called us and he invites us into this lifestyle, this, this walk with him that might call us away from other things, but press us into that which we were created for. And that's good, good news. So we see here, God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, this I believe. Do you believe with me? This I believe, we believe together. And what we're going to do now, if you are a believer in Jesus, we're going to stand up and recite this creed. If you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't believe that God has, has cares for you, I want to tell you that he does. I want to tell you that he does. And this God, even though we have rebelled against him and turned our back on him, he has sent an atonement for our sins, a fixer for us, Jesus Christ himself, to build a bridge so that we can have a relationship with God the Father. And he invites you to come on in because just when you turn your face to this God and you surrender all to him at that moment, he's your father too. That's good news. For those of us who believe, we're going to stand and we are going to proclaim this creed together. The essentials of the faith. I'll invite the band to come out here because we'll sing afterwards. But let's go ahead and let's do this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. 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 Amen.